Hey, Cinepod listener, you're hearing the sound of my voice right now because we're doing a book giveaway. We've plugged it before, but this is your final reminder. Go to facebook.com forward slash Cinepod, C-I-N-E-P-O-D, for our page. Find the Bruce Van Dusen post and comment. That's all you have to do, and you could win a fantastic free copy of 60 Stories About 30 Seconds. Do it. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? Hey, Ben, it's going pretty well. How's it going with you? It's going awesome because we have a fascinating and timely documentary filmmaker to talk to today. I don't know if I would say timely, considering we did the interview one year ago this month. But uh... but, but don't you think, <laughs> as we're recording this, yes, there are actual U.S. senators preparing to try and overturn an election. Like authoritarianism is creeping into our country. And this is a, you've got kind of a cautionary tale at the beginning of the very same authoritarianism. Whew. I guess you could you could make a case for that. Of course, it's a more, uh, <laughs> the film in question is The Dissident. And this is a much more extreme version of authoritarianism that takes place in the movie. But you could draw the parallels for sure. Connect the dots that the U.S. is heading in a way that perhaps we should not be headed. Yeah, that we should not be headed. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't yes. believe you went there. You uh, you picked up on that immediately. So well, very well good. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So we've got uh, Jake Swanko on the show. A uh, uh, returning guest, Jake Swanko. Yeah. Of course. Who, uh, who also is with the not controversial. Uh, oh, yeah. Icarus. Icarus, which won Icarus. the Academy Award. Super yeah. controversial. Amazing documentary. And no different this time. And I'm not going to give it away. But, you know, this is going to be equally, uh, it already is uh, stymied in controversy. And also, I feel like, has a real shot at an Academy Award. So, um, yeah. Uh, and it comes out on pay-per-view streaming on January 8th. And uh, I know a lot of people, and myself included, uh, we tend to, like, wait till stuff is on the uh, free services or the services we're already paying for. I shouldn't say free services. We're paying for Prime. We're paying for Netflix. But I feel like uh, certain films like this, which I have not seen, but I'm basing this on on what you have said and the subject matter of it and the reputation of the filmmakers behind The Dissident, it seems like it's very much worth ponying up a little bit of money to support their efforts in making a film like this. Docs are hard to finance, and it's great when they can make some of their money back. A hundred percent. And and I will also be, uh, I'm, I'm going to, I saw this at Sundance. Uh, I'm going to pay to see it again. It, it was that good. I don't know how many documentaries that I, I watch multiple times uh, over and over again, but uh, this is one that I will definitely watch again. It's moving. It's powerful. You don't watch a lot of documentaries over and over again? No, I, I, I have a tendency. I, I, get, I think that the most effective documentaries really stick with me. And so I don't necessarily feel like I have to revisit them over and over again. But um, there are a couple. There are a couple for sure. I got to admit, I've watched a lot of documentaries many, many, many times over. Like the ones that I love, like Errol Morris is fast, cheap and out of control. I've probably seen that movie 30 times. Actually, most of Errol Morris's movies I've seen more than once. But also lots of uh, Frederick Wiseman and uh, Werner Herzog's documentaries too. Uh, Grizzly Man. Uh, he also he made a film about his working relationship with Klaus Kinski called My Best Fiend. I love watching. I mean, I'll watch a documentary as many times as I would watch uh, a narrative film if it's something that really uh, reaches me. 
I will tell you that I feel like some of the most powerful documentaries, many of the ones that are nominated for for Oscars, I used to go to this thing that uh, in the days before kids uh, called DocuDay, where you could watch every single Academy Award nominated movie uh, from the documentary category shorts and features back to back to back. And it's wonderful, but I'll tell you that the Academy loves themselves some really heavy, very depressing stuff. And when you have that sort of like compounding of, uh, of, of intensity of documentaries over and over again, I feel like they really stick with me and I don't feel like I necessarily have to like, I, it's probably one of the most incredible short documentaries I've ever seen, but, uh, the blood of Yangzhou province, which, uh, won, won the Oscar that year, many, many years ago, it's horrendous and gut wrenching. And I, you know, uh, there's, there's narrative films like that too, that I feel like stick yeah. with me, like city of God, never need to see that oh, wow. again incredibly powerful movie never never need to watch it again yeah that's uh i own that on uh what they call the digital versatile disc I oh own, the digital I the, versatile disc oh wow i have i have the the digital versatile disc of uh city of god love how many that times movie. have you have how many times have you seen it uh under five mm. i think i saw it in the theater with you it's possible i i think i, I think i left uh, staggering out of that movie theater not knowing what i had watched so brilliant a, brilliant beautiful film it, it, anyway it, it was so what do we want to talk about today as our close focus? God, there, there's a lot of stuff going on. You know, it's interesting. I noticed that the entertainment trades picked up on Trump calling Georgia trying to convince uh, uh, the, the, the Board of Elections that he needed to find 11,000 something votes. I, I know we don't really need to talk about Trump and politics. I know, and it's but, not really entertainment, but, although, I, but, and I tweeted I tweeted about this, if I ever have to write a scene about a mafia shakedown, I'm going to reference that call. It, I, I listened to the whole hour-long thing. And uh, I was it was shocking. I have not heard it yet. But yes, reading in Variety and The Hollywood Reporter, you know, tabloid magazines, uh, entertainment industry stuff who you don't expect to be covering politics, covering this particular story, I thought was was powerful. Well, I mean, you know, elect an entertainment professional as your president and expect uh, (laughs) I'm going to say darkly entertaining days ahead for yourself. We could also talk about Minari. You know, uh, American. Well, the Minari thing is is interesting, I think. And for people who haven't heard about it, it's that uh, Minari is uh, not even being considered for in the best picture category for Golden Globes. Oh, excuse me. Golden Globes. My bad. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rather only foreign language. And that's and obviously we're talking we're comparing Golden Globes to Oscars here. But that's one year after a and a movie that it was a Korean language film won best picture uh, at the Oscars that being uh, Parasite and so uh, it seems a little a little weird because Minari is not entirely in Korean in fact large chunks of it are in English and it is an American movie not a not yeah. a Korean movie so uh, financed by I think uh, A24 and Plan B so it's like you know that's a yeah. that's a yeah American production so, yeah, I guess kind of a smattering because also uh, you had brought up right before we got on mic about how China uh, surpassed America in box office this year. Now, I believe this is kind of an outlier of a year in that, like, the number one box office movie of 2020 was Bad Boys 3. So uh, that's in this country. In, in China, there was a, a different movie that was the number one movie. Well, I've always heard and uh, I, I've never bothered challenging the statistic. So what do I know? But I've always heard that we would get spanked every year by China and India, which, you know, have uh, I don't I don't know population for population what the exact comparison is. But China does obviously have a much 
larger population. And I remember because uh, I had worked on a movie in Thailand and a lot of our crew was Indian about the, you know, the Indian film industry. And and I'm sure it's changed a lot since then because it was a long time ago. But there are so many dialects in India that apparently they simultaneously make the, sil- the same movie in like multiple dialects. The same movie basically gets released multiple times. Anyone who actually knows what I'm talking about, feel free to reach out and correct me and I will read the correction on air. But uh, I, um, I can actually correct you a little at this moment since I did work please. on an East Indian film many, many years ago, a musical, as you might imagine, that uh, was being shot in the U.S. And it was kind of a big deal that this Indian production was coming over to the U.S. and doing this, that we shot the movie on an Airy 2C, which if uh, you remember your film cameras, not a quiet camera, not a sync sound camera. It <laughs> sounded like a lawnmower running because it was running film through there and it wasn't blimped or, you know, quieted for I for think that I sound. might have an Airy 2C in my garage. Ooh, fancy. That's a uh, 35 millimeter, uh, you know, sort of a old school camera, but we shot anamorphic and the actors were learning lines phonetically, even though they did not speak Punjabi or Hindi or whatever the, the other, the alternate language was. So they would do the scene one way. They'd cut, we'd slate it again for uh, for a new language, and then voila, all the actors would do their lines phonetically in this other language, and it didn't really matter anyway, because other actors were just going to overdub them later. Uh, yeah, so I guess I wasn't completely wrong. But anyway, I, I had just always heard for years that the movie business was humongous in both China and India, and was actually bigger than the American movie business. It, it, they, they have huge populations. It, they both have nearly 1.4 billion people each. So compared to our paltry 300 million i think that we have a you know a large middle class we pay a lot more per tickets you know we have you know a, a whole infrastructure oh so the so, uh, the the money coming in would be greater from america just because we're charging more i think uh, we're tra- and more yeah, and more people can afford to go to the movies all the time. I, I think all of these are, are factors for the But in China, world. like, you know, the middle class has been growing and growing and growing over the last, whatever, 20 years. And so it certainly you know, has. More, more people are having access to that kind of thing. So, A, that doesn't surprise me. And B, again, after March, most of us didn't go to the movies at all. And the places where people were still able to go to the movies, I'm sure, you know, the numbers were significantly lower of people who even wanted to go to the movies in those areas because, you know. I, as as much as I uh, wanted to see Tenet, I didn't want to see it more than I wanted to be alive. So, I, I think it'll be interesting to try and find the box office numbers from like New Zealand this year because New Zealand, it, of any place, it seems like the coronavirus it impacted them the least. Uh, I'd be curious if their box yeah, office, New Zealand, took, Australia too, yeah, took took much of a hit. Like, so, yeah, we uh, one of the one of our interviews was in, was an Australian DP, and he was like, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna go have dinner with so and so tonight," and I was like you're going to have what now? And he was like, oh yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to rub it in. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's the reality. But you know, here's the other thing we didn't even talk about. The producers guild and SAG after it came out basically pleading producers to not produce movies right now to, to wait. So uh, Netflix announced they were going to slow down. A couple of the other studios said that we're going to kind of pump our brakes, but uh, really it's not like it was any sort of enforcement. It was just pleading, you know, because uh, they want to help curb the spread, but uh, you know, the, <laughs> it's not like the government is paying anyone to stay home. It's not like uh, people don't have. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, maybe I'm just a very privileged person in that I haven't had a reason to be on any shoots. I've had a couple of shoots come my way and I have turned them down during this period of time. I've been able to do a lot of work remotely from home, a lot of post stuff. 
But uh, I, I got to say, to me, it would take a lot of convincing to get me on a, on a set of any kind right now. And part of that convincing would be we're going to be in a bubble. <laughs> we're all going to be tested every day or, or three times a week or whatever. You know, like I think that a lot of people, we have to make a living. And, you know, again, we as you said, we haven't been getting any financial assistance and people need to buy food and take care of their families and stuff like that. It's not like anyone's helping us really do that. But at the same time, the numbers of COVID in L.A. County have been ranging of new cases per day have been ranging between 35,000 and 65,000 per day for the last several weeks. And we know it's about to go up because of Christmas and New Year's. And uh, it's all terrifying. And uh, as reticent as I was to set foot outside my door before that, like now it has to be like an absolute necessity you know, i.e. groceries or, you know, a medical emergency to get me out of the house. As I think is very prudent. And I think that everyone is trying to uh, hunker down as much as they can possibly hunker down. But uh, one of the producers who was interviewed for the Variety article was like, uh, it's great for you to say that, but it's not going to stop the it's not going to stop people needing to eat and put food on the table. No, that's true. I mean, uh, yeah, it's a terrible choice to ask people to make. And, you know, I sort of feel like shame on us for putting people in that position. But I've been saying from the beginning when people have been pushing back against the coronavirus because they want to save the economy. I'm like, there's a virus and there's an economy. One of them was entirely invented by us and made up and we can control it. And the other one is a deadly virus that, you know, we're doing our best, but it's going to take some time. And I just want to see us take better care of ourselves. It's been very instructive to know uh, how kind of on our own we really are this year. Yeah, uh, especially since other countries really have done a good job at trying to figure out ways to support their population. And in our country, it's like, you know, there's there's not going to be I mean, there's there's not a lot of willingness on the part of our political leaders to have loan forgiveness and jubilees where, you know, rent and mortgages are no longer due that that where in other countries, this is like, you know, uh, this is this is the type of thing that that takes place because it's for the benefit of everyone. It's very what socialism, ooh, the, 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 the word that Americans hate to hear. But, you know, it's uh Really, uh, they got their shit figured out and people can stay home and the virus is more under control everywhere right now than in Los Angeles. (laughs) Literally, we are the worst place in the world for coronavirus. Yes. We're number one. (laughs) Take that, Brazil. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Uh, All right. So after that sunny uh, COVID filled situation, I think we should get on to our interview with Jake Swantko. Here it is. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Jake Swanko, thank you so much for uh, sitting down with us again. Uh, you and I met back in 2017 when Icarus was here at the festival. And of course, that movie had a, an incredible, incredible run, including an Academy Award. Uh, congratulations again for that, since I don't think I've spoken with you since then. Yeah, thank you so much. And, and you're back again this year with The Dissident. And The Dissident, uh, I saw the movie. And not only did I love the movie, but I'm going to say that it's an important movie. And it's so important, I believe, that everyone, everyone, certainly Americans, need to see this movie. I want to almost start with the end first in that as much as I love the movie and I feel like it's a no-brainer for distribution, this is a dangerous movie to a certain extent. And I'm really concerned that maybe someone does buy this movie and then maybe the Saudis buy this movie and stick it on a shelf and that uh, that 
you guys don't actually get your movie out into the world the way that you you would intend. So uh, we'll get into the movie in a, in a second. But have you guys been having conversations internally about like? Uh, what, I mean, I mean, such a brilliant question to start with too. It's basically been a point of conversation for over a year and a half since, or a year and a couple months since we started making this thing. Who's going to buy this? This is so incendiary. What we're and the more we went down that rabbit hole, the more we started to realize that we're pressing up against some pretty powerful entities and forces. So to answer your question, yes, that is a tremendous concern. We don't know what's going to happen here with distribution, but we know that people are responding really well to the film, and that's ultimately all we can really do, right? We can only make our best film and um, hope that someone has the courage to show it on a platform where everybody can see it because that's you know ultimately what we want is we want this story our characters and um you know the work that we did on this film and the the legacy of jamal khashoggi to live on in this document that we have made into what i think would be a thriller and so yeah we're we're in a very strange tectonic sort of place right now we don't know exactly what's going to happen but that's um that's okay. I think that, I think what I've kind of reiterated is some of the people is it's nice to be kind of known as the band book and the film has content in it that is of tremendous consequence to very powerful people. So what more could you ask for? You're absolutely right. And actually our producer, Alana Cody uh, mentioned this right after seeing the, the movie, but she said, I think Jeff Bezos should buy this. I think it should be on Amazon but not really spoiling anything here, but Jeff has a part in the movie, or at least the, the movie is in part about Jeff and that even like this morning on NPR that they had mentioned about uh, his phone being hacked by, by Saudi Arabia. It was interesting. They didn't go into it any further than that. It was a part of a segment about cybersecurity and then they went into something else. But uh, talking about like current events, just yesterday, the FBI foiled a plot of Saudi Arabia trying to kidnap a U.S. citizen. And like here on U.S. soil, this is a a major state actor who is trying to oppress their agenda anywhere in the world and hiding behind a veil of secrecy and really trying to silence the people who are speaking out against it. It goes against pretty much everything that, you know, we as Americans, I think, really hold dear, especially like uh, freedoms of the press and freedom of expressions, freedom of speech. The movie deals with weighty issues. What is uh, what do you think is the number one takeaway is from this movie for anyone who's who's watching it? Man, that's a really difficult question. Um, I think this is is such a complex narrative that um, has so much information in it, but ultimately was at the center of this is Jamal Khashoggi and how moderate his voice was, how humble he was and the way he spoke and that his pointed criticism was not like tremendously out there. You know, this was, he was a very moderate voice and he was searching for reform and he just, he could not shut himself up. He could not be silenced. And he just, he always wanted to get his thoughts across. And so I think ultimately what I would hope is, is for people to see somebody a revolutionary of a sort, but in such a tremendously humble way. And the thing that I keep coming back to is just freedom of speech, the freedom of expression and to stand up for what you believe in, no matter how difficult it is. You know, the guy left his family, you know, he left the country he loved. He started over. Can you imagine starting over at age 60 in Washington, DC? And then all this 
pressure from the top from Saad Al-Qahtani and MBS and all these things saying for him to stop writing. And and, and when you say MBS, you're talking about Mohammed bin Salman, yeah. who is the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. That's correct. Yeah. And the Khashoggi murder really occupied the headlines here for a period of time. But uh, in recent weeks, certainly, I feel like it's kind of uh, died down. If this movie gets out there, I have to feel like all of that's going to come up again and hopefully will uh, the Americans in general, I think, tend to be very passive and that uh, stories kind of come to them and some of it might spark some interest and people will then learn more. But uh, the more something stays in the headlines, the more chances there are of that. I think it would be fantastic if this story continues uh, his legacy. But um, I guess really my question is for this is, are the people who are featured in the documentary going to be also working in other aspects and other capacities to try to make sure that the story is told? Yes. You know, I think the the thing is, is Brian, neither Brian or I really come from like a huge advocacy background. You know, we, we make films because we believe in the stories. And, you know, of course, with Icarus, there was this tremendous shift and change that happened. We never intended that to happen. We just approached the material with what we think is the best treatment for it. And so Brian came to me and said, you know, this has got all the points. This story, I think this is the next one. And so I started to read up about it, and it does have many of those factors that we look for in making a film. The advocacy of it, it was very well said by our uh, one of our producers, Thor Halverson, last night. You know, this advocacy was second for this. And the best that we can do is create a piece that we're extremely proud of and that has a lot of craft in it and get it out there. And then if it starts its own advocacy, that's what, and you know, we're going to continue that. You know, Hatija will be speaking everywhere. We'll get Omar to come out with us and stuff too. Hatija and Omar, of course, being central characters in the movie. I know we haven't really talked about yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah, the center part of the, the movie at all, but, and, and actually I don't want to go that far down into it because I want people really to see it. And if they are unfamiliar with the story to really uh, enjoy it. So I think what I would like to do though now is kind of talk about the production process and how this comes to be, because you'd let me know that this was a very, very short production schedule that basically October 2019? Uh, uh, 28, yeah. October 2018? Right after Khashoggi, it was probably a month or so after Khashoggi was murdered that we we moved on this story. We knew that there was going to be huge interest from two main characters that we wanted to solidify and have as our, our people. And then we also understood that um, in order for this to be as good as it could be, we'd had to have to have the cooperation of the Turkish government. So that, I think, is what I am most proud of, of the, that we pulled this off in a year. I mean, we, I was probably on the road 250 days this year. So it was, we were Istanbul four times, five times, and I was in Montreal probably 11. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And, and um, the evidence that's provided by the Turkish government is incredibly damning. It's incredible to have it all spelled out in this part of the documentary. Was it difficult to convince Turkey to, to get involved with this, or were they all, all too willing? Well, no, they were not all too willing. But what you said earlier is absolutely the truth, is like this died in the headlines. You know, it's like this story was incendiary for two months and then nothing happened. We came basically to the Turkish government and said, we have the means and the production value to give this story the treatment that it deserves. And if this wants, if you want to have any sort of lasting impact with this case, come with us, come, like give us the chance to make this story. And ultimately we started at the bottom rung of Turkish government working with the media there, um, starting and, and just, you know, Turkey is such a culture of sit down and have a Turkish delight, have a cigarette, have some tea 
And then we'll talk in about five days. <laughs> so it was, we spent a lot of time pacing in Istanbul, but those were those factors. And we knew if we were going to take this story head on, that those were kind of the three pieces. And, you know, working as a producer on this was really like, kind of splitting my head between the two and um you know i actually really splitting your it. head between the two because as producer and as cinematographer yeah exactly yeah. yeah so diving into the technical aspects of like moving people and crew and things and then also thinking of the more cerebral and strategic stuff that we're going to need to do to to secure the access but to your question about the turkish government we spent a year meeting officials every single person that was willing to sit with us sat with us and talked with us and you know it's it's, it's kind of a word of mouth thing you know it's like we there's this director here and producer and they you know had an incredible achievement with Icarus we sat down and we talked to them and they seem like they're trustworthy guys and so that's where this kind of kept going and ultimately our last big one is uh in the uh, the film Ferritin Altoon Ferritin and Altoon has never done an interview on camera and so that is basically Erdogan's right hand man and so we were working to get an interview with that guy from day one and it finally materialized at the presidential palace in Turkey and in Ankara yeah I mean it's, it's a very surreal surreal experience that we were able to accomplish this but we knew we had to move fast we knew that there were we're, there's going to be so many stories done about this, and the and the more stories are, it just kind of dilutes it into this big pool of we need a definitive document on this, and that's what we set out to do. I, I think you succeeded. I think that it definitely feels uh, extremely definitive and very well crafted. I remember actually when I was in the theater about 20 minutes before the end of the movie, uh, the woman next to me leans over to her friend. And she goes, they could have ended it right there. And I immediately thought to myself, like, you have no idea how this is going to end. And, and, and granted, she, I think she was responding very much to the personal story. And the personal story, the story of Khashoggi's fiance, is uh, the heart of the movie and really does, I think, draw a, a real connection because everyone can relate to love and probably relate to loss. And the last 20 minutes of the movie, though, is when you guys really break it down. When you really break down the relevance of Saudi Arabia to the United States and the relevance of oil and arms and everything else. And if there's any portion of that movie, I feel like that people need to see it's probably those last 20 minutes, but I'm very impressed at the achievement of getting Turkey to, uh, to come along and, and it was completely worth the, the, the effort. What is your, what's your hope for this movie? I think I, I understand your hope is that people will see it and it'll get out there. But if you could, um, if you could vocalize now that this is done, where are you hoping this will go? I asked some of the Washington Post columnists, you know, what do you think Khashoggi would have wrote about his own murder, his own execution, his own assassination? And, and I would just like, you know, it makes me think, I wonder what Jamal would have thought about this movie about him. And um, my hope is, as we started, it is to leave with a product film that we're all incredibly proud of and we're willing to stand up and continue to defend it. You know, I mean, this we're just at the start of this too, you know, like this film, and you know, like this sort of propaganda machine that's happening with Twitter and some of these other places, social media, it's like... We're uh, yes, uh, and uh, just for our listeners at home, uh, very much covered inside the movie, but yes, that uh, Twitter has uh, recently banned 88,000 accounts that were controlled by the government of Saudi Arabia. So. Yeah. So, you know, smear campaigns are coming. There's just, there's just no way about it. I mean, the IMDB score already descended on by the flies, 2.7. Oh my God. It's yeah. incredible. So, uh, <laughs> they, they, uh, it's, it's the playbook and it's, it's comical, but it's like, I think the important thing to understand is these, these platforms are being manipulated. 
Uh, absolutely. You can't trust any rating scores or comments uh, unless you know actually the person who's yeah. involved. So, exactly. Um, yeah. Well, I have no doubt that, I mean, the way that these state actors, government actors, these um, special interests succeed is that they are cloaked in darkness and that there is no light shining on what their tactics and what their procedures are. Movies like this, I think, will do a wonderful job in actually exposing massive amount of. I mean, forget fake news, but fake opinion, fake opinion by what seems like concerned citizens or concerned people out there, but are nothing more than uh, fabrications by powerful people. Yeah, um, there's a playbook and part of having Bezos in the back end of the film, despite the, the back end of the film being very dense as it is, is to show that this there's a playbook of how they're doing this. And it's a very concerted effort with the flies, which is, it refers to the Saudi troll army basically that exists in Riyadh. And, um, there are other troll armies that are, that are famous too. Um, Russia of course has a a very famous uh, troll army that they, I I can't remember what they, they call their group at the, at the moment, but China, of course. So, and, uh, right there up there too is Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Maybe we just make a, a movie all about the trolls of the different worlds. Yeah, I'd watch it. I, I, it's just, um, you know, it's a war on information. And, and you know, when I was going to school in, uh, for journalism in 2011, these platforms were just emerging and it was su- supposed to be the crowning achievement of freedom of speech. And it was going to be that North Star of information. And we've just seen in the past couple of years how perverted it's become and that platforms, some of them, many of them don't have a backbone. And um, or the willingness or the willingness. Yeah. Or, you know, and in this particular case um, with Omar, too, is, you know, who's like this outspoken 27, 28 year old kid. And then you have Khashoggi, who was this insider, very soft spoken sort of. And somewhere in the middle is where the Saudi government got extremely concerned. Jake, what is uh, what's coming up for you next? I know I'm assuming that it's going to be this movie for a, a long period of time, but if not, I, am, am I wrong? Are you already on to another project? No, or? I'm taking months, months, months off. Yeah, good, after this, good for you. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, um, 250 days of solid, of solid travel. Yeah, work and- I'm gonna just probably stay in my Brooklyn apartment for quite a while. Um, you know, the more you, yeah, the more you dive into these narratives about social media, the more you kind of subtract yourself from it. So I've, I've increasingly become less visible. Yes. Well, you know, it's just like the other thing is like I don't want like really want people knowing when I'm in Turkey or anything like that and these stuff like that I just it's better for me not, not to you know oh, oh absolutely yeah I mean, I mean god when you when you hear about and you start to go down the rabbit hole of just what exactly Saudi Arabia is capable of it's it's scary it's it's yeah. truly scary uh, you're a producer on The Dissident, and you were an associate producer on Icarus. It's a big split to be both cinematographer and producer. How does this work for you? How does it come to this? I know we talked about it in our, in our interview a couple of years ago, but what's this like? It's like the most you could have ever asked for in your career at this particular point, at least for me. Um, in terms of, you know, working, I like, I like to split my heads. You know, I, I think a lot of the producing that I did was mostly creative producing and ensuring that the relationships and that the fluidity of our production can continue. And it was mainly working a lot with Omar Abdulaziz and embedding in with him for long periods of time. And, uh, you know, Brian and I basically kind of go out and start to make these things. And I think you know, to be honest, we, we really had something to prove after Icarus, I felt like. I felt like a lot of people thought that we... Yeah. Oh, a fluke. Oh, we got yeah. lucky. It's, we stumbled. And, and, you know, we were extremely lucky. And, and 
but the craft is there. Exactly. But, so, the, the, even, so, even if you had lucky circumstances, the, so, the craft of that movie is unquestionable. I'm, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll let you speak to you, but the craft of this one is also unquestionable. And uh, huge props to your CG team and motion graphics because you took very difficult concepts. It'd be very difficult to dance about this architecture in, in any movie, but you're... Your, your motion graphics department does such a great job of giving you visuals to understand the story. So, yeah. so I'm, I'm, yeah, go right ahead. I know I interrupted yeah. you there, but yeah. I have, so, to, have to give props to them. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, I really wanted to prove something on this and mostly to myself and also like for this story, you know, it, it was really this story deserved every bit of production value, attention to detail, everything that I could muster to, to, to make sure that it was told the way I thought it should be told. So producing on it is was just more a product of being very involved on all ends of the production. So it's more like, you know, when you get into the camera work of it, it can be very technical and with certain scenes of, and then going to the being able to go to the editors and go, hey, take a look at this. Hey, did you have you have you seen this part? Did you watch all this footage? I know it's 18 hours, but here. Yeah, watch, watch well, it. no, it's I mean, and you have to understand what the amount of pressure that our editors. I, I can't believe that you guys got. I, I mean, I know you had four editors in the credits I saw, yeah. but I can only imagine the teams of people that must have been working around the clock to actually get this done by the deadline. You oh guys had to be cutting the whole way through production. Okay. There's no other way you could do it. Absolutely. So. This makes me lead to, to one more follow up question, though, about this, which is you didn't have a ton of resources during the production of Icarus. You definitely had a few more resources this time around. I'm sure it was a benefit and a, a real asset to you in order to get this movie done to tell it the way you wanted it to be told. But I have to imagine, too, that it's never enough. <laughs> never, there's never enough resources. Uh, to, can you talk a little bit about uh, you don't have to talk about the budget. This is Sundance. We don't talk about budgets. I, yeah. I understand all that. But can you talk about just like the difference in moving from like uh, the production level that you're doing with Icarus to this sort of level? Because it's it's an order of magnitude, it seems like. Yeah, I just think that in the approach, this aesthetic of this story and and everything, we had to basically, you know, I went to Brian. I was like, this can't look like Icarus. We got to raise, we got to elevate. We're telling a story that's also in the past, very short past, but still. So it's like we're gonna, it's it's just a whole different sort of film. Like this run and gun verite stuff is great for certain things, and with Icarus, we were in the middle of this shitstorm, And now we're on, on the peripheral, but we're coming inside of this center of information. But you have to understand that like a lot of this stuff has already happened and we weren't there. So, you know, I just approached Brian. I was like, this, this, we gotta, we gotta elevate. We gotta go big on this. And he agreed with me. And ultimately the biggest deciding factor was, you know, Marnie uh, Zimmerman at Panavision just said, you know, I, we go, hey, here's our budget. And she goes, okay, let's make it work. Two cameras, Primo lenses, Red Epic. It was just everything. So that's incredible. Yeah, yeah that's, that's great. Uh, Jake, I think we're out of time, but thank you so much for, for coming back and, and talking with us again. And we will be following and updating our listeners with the progress of this, uh, of this movie. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. So that was Jake Swanko and uh, everybody listening to the sound of my voice. If you have the wherewithal, please go check out The Dissident on VOD. I think it's going to be a very important film. And I'm, I'm kind of bummed that it didn't come out months ago, like before, let's say, November, just to make a random date. Anyway. Well, we'll be, we'll be happy because, you know, here you, get, you finally get a chance to see it. And it's, it's only a couple of days away. January 8th, 2021. 
And now, short ends. So, Ilya, it is now time for our award-winning, world-famous chili bake-off. No, it is time for our short ends. What is your pet obsession of this week? In the past, I've gone to the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas, and it is one of the largest conventions that goes on there every year, with typically more than 100,000 people showing up. Thankfully, it's not happening in person the way that it has in the past, but they are doing the convention in a virtual in a virtual mm. manner and uh, it's going to run between January 11th and 14th uh, 2021 and you know it's interesting well, because I mean what what kind of stuff do they have at the Consumer Electronics Show? The Consumer Electronics Show is mostly made up of booths. A couple of halls are just huge electronics manufacturers. I'm talking like the Sony's and Panasonic's, but in recent years, actually, the Chinese electronics manufacturers, the uh, TCL's and the Huawei's and and those sorts of companies have been buying up big space and pitching their their television sets and their refrigerators and all the other sorts of consumer things. The fact that they're now going to do this convention, which I always thought was possibly one of the worst conventions that I ever attended just because of the, (laughs) the size and the walking and everything else, is Uh now going to be entirely online and they're going to have thousands of exhibitors and hundreds of speakers and all their same sort of thing. And you can do it at home or turn it off or not have to. I'm wondering if this is going to change fundamentally the trade show. A lot of other industries look to the consumer electronics show because it has such a a huge population and it has, it's got a lot of influence and and other smaller shows from niches around uh, different uh, segments of uh, the products and services that we all use. They all look to CES to see what CES did and and use that as a way to, uh, I would say, like inform or maybe decide how they're going to do a trade show. If now that this is moving online, I mean, heck, uh, they did a whole thing on podcasting last year. I I went to it. I I don't have to do that now. And I may be really, really glad that trade shows, at least trade shows like this, are a casualty of the coronavirus, which I wouldn't Mm. have expected that to happen. This actually, I think, is might be one good thing. And I have to imagine that those booths and everything are super, super expensive. They probably can't charge those companies that same amount of money anymore since there isn't a physical presence and there isn't a team of a thousand people and you show up and build something. And I will tell you, like the Googles and stuff, uh, they show up to these things and they build like massive interactive experiences, which include like, you know, slides and parking lots and self-driving cars and all these other things. This is the time when these big companies, you know, are looking for some press and they want to sort of dominate the headlines. I think it might sort of uh, upend an industry and it'll be interesting to see what happens happens and what yeah. the feedback is so to it's not a little have bit to of send... a bummer do we do we know yet if nab is canceled this year nab got pushed nab got pushed i believe to october 2021 and then they plan okay. well that's in 2022 that's, honestly, to it was always right around tax day anyway i always thought it was weird that it's like <laughs> oh right before tax day i'm gonna go drive to las vegas sometimes it's, it was actually on tax day sometimes it was like Ugh. april 15th and the show was going on so yeah, it was yeah, kind, of, yeah. kind of a pain. I remember signing my taxes and then like hopping, running to the airport. So, Well, I mean, I th- it's probably a good thing. Hopefully they'll bring it back. I mean, it, it's an interesting thing to, to bring up because there are big trade shows, NAB being one of them, you know, for our business. And then things like Comic-Con, obviously, you know, is huge and you can't do those at the moment. And I, I, what I want to know post-COVID is like there are certain things like I think probably uh, if I can drive across town and be stuck in traffic for two hours to take a 20 minute meeting or I can hop on Zoom from my house, I'll probably just choose to do the Zoom thing. Although FaceTime is always great. I mean, not FaceTime the program, but 
being in the same room with someone and actually having a conversation is, is always great, but I wouldn't be against doing uh, zoom. I hired a manager over zoom during COVID, but at the same time, I, I do think that like things like NAB where like, you're going to pick up a camera or you're going to put your hands on a keyboard and mess around with a, with a piece of software or piece of hardware. I, I do think I'll miss that. But at the same time, every year that I don't go to NAB, I'm able to get a hundred percent of the information from NAB from my house the day that it is released and short of literally holding it in my hands, I, I have all the information that I need about most of those products, which isn't to say I wouldn't prefer to go, but you know, sometimes I just can't. Well, we'll have to wait and see. So, so Ben, what's your, uh, what's your pet obsession this week? Oh, it's not going to surprise you one bit what my pet obsession is. Cause it's a podcast. Ooh, does it involve murder? No. Cults? No, not, not, not actual murder. Not, not, a, not a cult. <laughs> okay. It's, it's called uh, the Lolita podcast, oh, okay. and it's hosted by a comedian and writer. I should say she's a writer and a journalist. I know she does comedy, and she's a comedy writer, but I know her from another podcast called My Year in Mensa. That was funny, but also kind of a deep dive journal, like almost kind of a gonzo journalist kind of thing. And uh, her name's Jamie Loftus, and the Lolita podcast, I started now. I've never read Nabokov's Lolita. I've never read it. I've actually never seen the Stanley Kubrick film. I did really? see the Adrian... Huh. I've never seen the Kubrick film. But I have seen the Adrian uh, Lyne film. Uh, I was actually a projectionist at a movie theater and we were showing happiness and Lolita. <laughs> so happiness involved a pedophile. Lolita is all all pedophile. And then at night uh, on midnights, we were showing Pink Flamingos, which is controversial for other reasons. <laughs> and um, and it was just uh, kind of a crazy lineup at, at the Enzian Theater in Orlando at the time. But um, anyway, I kind of dove into it. I think this is a, a great piece of very uh, compelling and I hesitate to say entertaining, but it is entertaining. Like I don't want it's not light. It's about Lolita, which, again, having I have never read the book, but it's a, a sort of about how the book has been completely misinterpreted from Nabokov's original ideas including Stanley Kubrick's film in 1962, which Nabokov wrote the screenplay for, but then it was radically changed. And uh, let me ask you, have you, have you read the book? Never. Okay. So if I say Lolita, uh, what do you think of? What What's the first thing that pops into your head? Uh, uh, to be truthful, the Stanley Kubrick one sheet, the poster for Lolita mm -hmm. with the heart-shaped sunglasses. That's the first thing that pops into my head. But like, what do you think the, you know, the basic gist of the story of Lolita is? Uh, well, having seen the movie, I think it's about a bizarre May-December relationship. Great. So <laughs> what uh, what I didn't know and what uh, Jamie Loftus brings up in like episode one is that the whole book is written basically sort of as a confession to a jury. Mm. But there's a preface before it saying that Humbert Humbert, you know, is, is this horrible mon monstrous guy. It, it, there's some kind of a preface that kind of sets up unreliable narrator to come. And mm. then the rest of it is about a, a friggin' pedophile. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's a straight up story about a pedophile and a girl who does not want to go along with it, who is f basically kidnapped and forced into this. And uh, what Jamie Loftus kind of unpacks is how in, in culture, so she talks about the Kubrick film. She talks about uh, there are multiple stage adaptations, including one in the early 80s by Edward Albee, mm. and also including a musical and, uh, you know, just the multiple reinterpretations of it. She ha In the podcast series, she hasn't gotten to the 1998 film yet, but she, that, I believe, is the next episode. 
but she kind of unpacks how most of the versions of it either blame the relationship on Lolita. Like, I feel like when you say a Lolita, you're talking about culturally the reference. If I said so-and-so was Lolita, like you're saying she was a little temptress. Hmm. And Lolita is a made up name in the book. That's not the girl's actual name in the book. And it's all fictional, obviously, but uh, her name is Dorothy. And Nabokov wrote it basically as like the ultimate anti pedophilia book hmm. and created this monstrous narrator who, uh, Humbert Humbert, who, who you go with. Anyway, the podcast to me is just like, I, I, I uh, there's, I think, six episodes of it up right now. I gobbled them up uh, in every moment that I wasn't uh, staring at my son, you know, uh, watch, <laughs> watching a baby. Uh, you know, basically all my free time over the last, uh, you know, three or four days. And I've run out of episodes, which is like, you know, for me, I, I call it the event horizon when I when I like hit the point where there are no more episodes of a serialized podcast. And I'm like, oh, I got to wait another week to listen to this. <laughs> and I have it earmarked in my mind like, OK, on Sunday, they're dropping a new episode. I just think it's uh, it's really great storytelling. I think it unpacks something that's like a cultural uh, touchstone in our lives. Whether you've read Lolita or not, you've seen a bazillion things that reference it, including a lot of pop stars uh, a lot of music, a, a lot of movies and stuff have some reference to it. I even remember like in the in the 90s, I guess it was when uh, there was the whole Amy Fisher scandal. They called her the Long Island Lolita. That's true. And, they did. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, you know, it, it's it's interesting to kind of trace the roots of a of a cultural thing that's kind of ingrained in all of our heads and realize that. It's all kind of based on a on a horrible misinterpretation, like the, uh, an, an interpretation that literally goes in the opposite direction of what the author intended. It sounds fascinating. It's uh, it, it. I wouldn't say that delving further into Lolita is particularly my, you know, my cup of tea. But uh, but based on your recommendation, I'll give it a try. I'll, I'll give, yeah, I'll I mean, to it. honestly, I mean, again, I haven't read the book and I've only seen one of the movies in the, you know, the Adrian Lyne, uh, you know, Jeremy Irons movie didn't like really stick with me, even though I I was a projectionist. So I probably watched it more than once. But it, it's it's not something that like has traveled with me. But it's more about kind of like I, I think that our lives have been touched by the cultural phenomenon of this book. This book really has, was unbelievably influential in culture and has been, you know, since the 1950s. And she goes into that actually in the sixth episode, which dropped yesterday as we're recording this, where she kind of goes in and talks about like the pop stars that have been influenced by Lolita and advertising campaigns that have been inspired by it. And uh, I think it's, it's really worth listening to. And I love a podcast like this that just kind of does a deep dive into one topic and when you're done you're a little smarter and a little wiser and maybe we'll make better choices in your life i don't want to make this sound like it's health food because it's not it's a very interesting uh podcast it's not it's it's not hard to get through jamie loftus is really funny and engaging so it's it's definitely worth listening to and i'm going to stop selling it now uh <laughs> but check it out okay cool all right ben i think that just about does it let's uh let's thank some people Hey, before we do that, have I ever talked about Dead Eyes on this podcast? I don't think so. What's Dead oh, Eyes? Man. It's another podcast that's really good. <laughs> Save it for for another one. Why, why don't we actually? Okay. Why don't we tell people where they can find you? How about that? Okay, uh, I'll talk about Dead Eyes next week. That'll that'll be my short end. I, I never I never give up the game that far out. But man, Dead Eyes is good. Um, 
you can find <clears throat> excuse me you can i just i just like hit puberty <laughs> you can like find that simpsons teenager <laughs> <laughs> you can find me at benrockonline.com and you can find all my social stuff there uh, if you, you feel free to follow me on twitter if you want to friend me on facebook and see pictures of my dog and my kid that's cool too uh just uh you know don't troll my friends Anyway, yeah. How about yourself, Ilya? Uh, they can find me over at all the, the usual sorts of places. But uh, Monday through Friday, I'm generally working at Hot Rod Cameras. Sponsor of this podcast, hotrodcameras.com. You can find me. You can go there and uh, demand, rudely demand your T-shirt from Ilya. And he'll, uh, I will begrudgingly give you a T-shirt. If you socially distanced. But he'll give it to you. He won't, t- he won't shake your hand. We but. are curbside only. So you have to drive by, not get out of your car, call us, and then someone will come outside. Call, call Ilya, berate him why you don't have his T-shirt yet. And then uh, he'll he'll come out with that and uh, maybe pie. Oh, and you know what? It, Don't it, take the pie. It's it, bad if idea. you happen to prefer a uh, a, a woman's T-shirt, if you if you uh, want a woman's shirt, uh, we bought a whole bunch of them and they haven't been as popular. So uh, if you're thinking, hey, like, oh, I just on, want man. I just want a big, giant, oversized, double XL man's shirt. And I, I wear like, you know, a, a, a petite woman's shirt. That's OK. We got we got a bunch of sizes. We got a bunch of uh, extended sizes, as they say. Covering, covering both genders. So there you go. Excellent. Well, cool. Uh, who should we thank this week? Let's thank our producer, Alana Cody. Alana Cody kicking all the ass, uh, setting up some... We, we've we've had some pretty amazing interviews just recently. Yeah, and more to I'm, come. I'm, I'm not going to talk about, but they're pretty badass. <laughs> uh, we'd like to thank Ben Katz, who every week makes us sound not like the dolts that we both are. Yes, thank you, Ben Katz. I, I appreciate that. Uh, and let's thank Kay Zalatracci, who uh, who did all the music that you heard in this episode. And he most certainly did not listen to this episode. Most certainly. <laughs> okay, well, and I think we've thanked everyone. Uh, let's uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Excellent. And we will see you then and always, always at the Cinematography Podcast. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.